Hi, I'm your host, Austin Wright, and welcome to the podcast, Upon the Rock. When it comes to reading scripture, there is a danger in self-interpretation, uh, interpreting by yourself. Uh, I've touched upon this in my articles titled The Authority and Unity Problem. Um, I'll put a link to that in the description below. But Holy Scripture requires guidance in how to read it so that we don't lead ourselves astray by the contents. Because Scripture is dense, it's very serious, very crucial, and indeed God-breathed. Uh, so it should not be taken lightly. And on top of that, the disunity among Christians and interpretation should not be taken lightly either. Um, so I actually want to point to Matthew 16. Normally that's the go-to passage for defending the papacy, and I am also go- am going to be defending the papacy and giving a case for Peter um, in this episode. But I also think that within Matthew 16, there's a lot more than just meets the eye with what we just see within, um, you know, the the black and white here um because i think that well matthew 16 can give a good um uh, well it's a good addition to refuting sola scriptura not that it refutes it all by itself but i think it's a good addition um to the scriptural arguments against sola scriptura uh which is uh amongst protestants um it's scripture alone which where that it is the sole infallible rule of faith um, but anyways, <clears throat> so Christ with his dialogue in Matthew 16, he shows us the importance of interpreting scripture correctly. Um, he asks them who men say that he is, uh, a direct quote is who do men say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Uh, that's verse verses 13 through 15. So he asked them who men say that he is, and they relayed to him varying answers on behalf of the Jews. Um, the answers are all understandable, but as we know, they are not correct. Um, so the Jews who came to these conclusions were not doing so ill-willed. It's not like they were purposely trying to twist scripture to fit a particular narrative. Uh, and it also could be assumed that the Jews who did come up with these answers that the apostles are relaying to the Lord were already following Christ and listening to the teachings of his ministry. Uh, but even if not, the Jews came to these conclusions using scripture to make their connections, using evidence before them to draw a comparison between Jesus and figures of the Old Testament. Um, and in some instances, they're not entirely entirely wrong because like there is typology in the Old Testament which all points to Christ ultimately. Um, however, um, they are wrong in identifying him completely. So among the apostles uh, and all the Jews referred, the answers that Christ gives, only one um, only one gives the correct answer. That's Simon. Um, and it was Simon's name alone that was changed, and he alone that was handed the keys to Christ's kingdom. Um, so right after, you know, verse 15, you know, it goes in, you know, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. 
and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, first, I want to point out the, the great significance of where they are at at this moment while this conversation is taking place. And I'm going to botch this pronunciation, um, but uh, Caesarea Philippi. So, this location that they're at, um, it was a city in time of Christ located in the foothills of Mount Hermon. Um, about 15 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So he takes them there and has this conversation, and it's really significant when it comes to Christ's particular wording in this instance. So this location, Caesarea Philippi, it was a location where pagans were offering sacrifices, namely to the god Pan. Um, and so pagan sacrifices were happening um, all the time there. It was it was a pagan holy site. Um, I haven't looked into all the details of all the types of sacrifices that were offered there, but um, the kind of actions I've seen in reference to the kinds of um, uh, sacrifices that were offered there, that they were um, despicable and, and, and evil types of sacrifices. Um, so it seems by that kind of language that it wasn't just that it wasn't just animal sacrifices happening here. Um, but also, it was believed that at this location, that there was an entrance to a cave, um, which was the entrance into Hades. Uh, and in pagan language, that is the underworld, um, hell. So the entrance of hell is right there. So he takes them to this place, and it's on this, you know, there's this, these huge, beautiful rock formations where these altars are offered up to these false gods and sacrifices are made to them um, and the gates of hell are there. And so Christ takes his apostles there and he says, you see this rock? Um, you know, this is where they sacrifice, you know, to these false gods. Um, and he looks at Peter and says, but upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's drawing a direct, you know, contrast between the pagans and how he's going to build his church. And he even he changes Simon's name to Peter, saying like you're you're the rock. I'm building my church upon you. They build altars to Pan here, offer sacrifices at the gates of hell here, but I am going to build my church upon you. So he gives him the keys of the kingdom, and he says, The gates of hell will not prevail against the church I am building upon this rock. So just some background, the significance of the area that they're at whenever they're having this conversation. <clears throat> so on top of that, um, the apostles, when they would have heard you know, this, um, this dialogue, between our Lord and St. Peter, they would have known the reference he was making to Isaiah 22 and the supremacy of the office of Eliakim, um, who was given the key to the kingdom of David and who was the representative of the king himself. Um, so this image of being given the keys 
was actually was an office within the Old Testament of being the representative of the king himself. So they would have known that Peter was being made representative and steward of Christ. So Jesus is the king of kings, the rabbi and the messiah, and he has chosen his representative um, and the one who is to lead in the continuance of his work after his death, and that's Peter. And upon Peter, he was to build his church, and to Peter, the keys to the kingdom were bestowed into no other apostle. Um, so in scripture, in the Old Testament, the king is the ultimate holder and keeper of the keys of the kingdom and all authority along with it. But he delegates and bestows his power, functions, authority to a steward. Um, the keys of the kingdom, therefore, are the image of this proxy authority. They not only opened all the doors, but they provided access to the storehouses and financial resources under the king. Um, in addition, the keys of the kingdom were like worn on a sash, and that was like a f- ceremonial badge of office. So this is clearly, you know, imagery of Peter is being in, um, installed into a stewardship, into an actual office that is separate from the other apostles. Um, so the passage from Isaiah and the customs all reveal uh, that the royal that the role of the royal stu- steward was an office given by the king, um, and that it was an office that was successive uh, in nature. The keys would be passed down to the succeeding steward as a sign of con- the continuation of this delegated authority of the king. So Peter is declared the steward the, is declared the steward of the church uh, to care for it in Christ's quote unquote absence. Um, so in the same chapter that he begins to share with his apostles the truth of his coming death which is very significant he's he reveals himself to his apostles and he reveals to them that he will give up his life and also he establishes his representative at the same time um and also, you know, when it comes to the significance of his name change. Um, so within scripture, when a name is changed, it's not lacking significance. Uh, God doesn't just change names willy-nilly. Uh, for instance, when Abram's name is changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, a covenant was established with them, for they would be the father and mother of nations. A new name means a new journey, vocation, position, or change in heart and direction, as with Jacob being renamed Israel. Um, it is this new and final covenant to whom Peter was bestowed the prime responsibility to lead the apostles in carrying on the gospel and spreading it to the nations after the passion of Christ. He is the leader of the Great Commission. There are arguments submitted by Protestants on the meaning or translation of rock in the passage from St. Matthew's Gospel, um, but they don't really hold up, especially considering where they were at and uh, the significance of Christ making the contrast between the pagans and his church. Um, it, there's no other way to actually read this except for Christ referring to Peter as being, you know, the rock. The claim is that the passage will say, um, you are Petros, uh, meaning small rock or stone, and upon this Petra, which they translate as massive boulder, I will build my church. Um, so with this perspective, Peter is the quote-unquote small rock and Jesus is the massive boulder. They kind of, um, those who try to say that 
Peter isn't actually the rock um, upon which the church is built, they'll switch out um, <laughs> within that passage. That they'll say that Christ is kind of like at one point saying, "You're a small rock, but I'm the big rock, and the church is built upon me." But that's not even all that clear within the language at all. It doesn't make sense with any of the context. Um, it, so, if Christ is not referring to Peter with "upon this rock," um, then did Christ change Simon's name for no reason? Because um, again, that does not seem like a thing that God nonchalantly does within Scripture. Why would our Lord change his manner of name changing only for this instance while simultaneously speaking of establishing his church? Why would he do something which in all of history of how he's operated with mankind where a name change is something that's very, very, very significant and um, is usually tied to their new calling? Why would he change his name for literally no reason while talking about establishing his church and contrasting it to the pagans? At Caesarea Philippi, or however you pronounce it, someone, some, some scholar is gonna <laughs> really criticize my pronunciation of that. I don't really care. Um, so, why call Peter the Rock and then immediately refer to a completely different rock afterwards? Um, so, this conversation between Christ and Peter it has the elements of a personal blessing, and there isn't clear reference to anything else except Peter. Um, People also try and say that, you know, the rock that's mentioned um, is just Peter's faith. Like, Peter's faith in this instance where he, you know, uh, he says that Christ, um, you know, is the Christ. You know, when, when he's saying this, that it's referencing, you know, just his faith and that the rock actually is is this faith and that is what the church is going to be built on. It's going to be built upon faith. Like, yes, okay, like that's some beautiful language, but that's not entirely true. Um, Peter's faith isn't referred to in this verse. Um, Christ does not refer to himself by any explicit manner. Um, and even if Peter's faith is being referred to, if we were to entertain that thought, one's faith is not apart from one's person. Uh, to refer to an attribute of a person, you're still connecting it to said person. If you say that politician's charisma won him an election, you wouldn't say that the charisma itself now holds office and that the politician is not involved. What is referred to as rock, and Simon's name was just changed to rock. Uh, I suppose I do kind of want to put more of a nail in the coffin on this argument that Protestants put forward. Um, so Oscar Coleman, uh, he's an editor for uh, Jared Kitchell's Greek Theological Dictionary as a New Testament, uh, which is one of the most well-respected and referenced Greek dictionaries used by evangelical Protestants. Um, in a comment about Matthew 6 and 18, he states, The obvious pun which has made its way into the Greek text suggests a material identity between Petra and Petros, as it is impossible to differentiate strictly between the two words. Petros himself is this Petra, not just his faith or his confession. The idea of the reformers that he is referring to the faith of Peter is quite inconceivable, for there is no reference here to the faith of Peter. Rather, the parallelism of thou art rock and on this rock I will build shows that the second rock can only be the same as the first. It is thus evident that Jesus is referring to Peter, to whom he has given the name rock. To this extent, Roman Catholic exegesis is right, 
and all Protestant attempts to evade this interpretation are to be rejected. So Peter is the rock in which Christ is to build his church, and he established as steward, and he and he is established as a steward of this church. Um, but I think I've kind of talked about that uh, quite a bit. Um, but there's a lot of significance in Matthew 16, um, in that Christ is showing us the significance of interpreting correctly, and so and it's only Peter who gets it right. Um, there's so much significance to where they're at, the words that Christ's used, um, and and everything. Like you can't just look at just what's there. Like you have to look at you know the surrounding context, um, which I think really just goes to show the Catholic exegesis on this passage of Peter being the rock that the church is built upon is the only correct one, and that he was established to have a very special office um, that is that is different from that of the rest of the apostles. So along with that, now I kind of want to look to Luke 22. So after the Lord and the apostles had eaten of the Passover meal, uh, there was a dispute among the twelve as to which of them was the quote-unquote greatest. Um, Christ observed this dispute among them, and he uses this opportunity to lead them deep into deeper and better understanding of their roles when he says the kings of the gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for which is the greater one who sits at the table or one who serves is it not the one who sits at the table but i'm among you as one who serves you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we see here that Christ did not correct them and declare that there was not a greatest, nor that there was not a leader among them. Even though he draws a comparison to their bickering on the greatest to that of the Gentile kings, he makes a contrast to what the leadership of the greatest among them is to look like within the church, saying that it is one of service and humility. Um, they would recognize and confess that the absolute greatest in the room was Christ, and acknowledge that Christ was here to, to serve, and that he placed himself in a humbling position, even though he is Lord of all. Therefore, the greatest among the apostles would be in a position of service to the others modeled after Christ. Not to be Christ, but be Christ-like. So, Jesus refers to the thrones in his kingdom that he himself assigns to them. So, he's not refuting the position of leadership in his church here. Um, from this, we know that the apostles are set apart from other believers by their office, their position, and that there is a leader among the apostles and it is one of service to the church. So directly following um, this previously mentioned passage where Christ speaks of leadership, um, starting right in Luke 22, verse 31 through 32, Christ immediately addresses Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So Christ tells Peter he has prayed for him specifically in light of Satan's wanting to have them all, 
The you in I have prayed for you is the singular you. Peter is being set apart yet again in the presence of the 12 and is again established as the leader. And the one who Christ prays for will strengthen the rest by his leadership. This setting apart of Peter is acknowledged among the 12. Um, For when the gospel writers uh, list the apostles, Peter is listed first each time uh, in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. Um, In the account recorded by St. Matthew, he makes the point to say first before beginning with Simon Peter in the list. And we can see and know that there is significance in the order of listing of the apostles because Judas is always placed at the bottom of each list. So we have these two accounts, uh, these two like primary accounts, um, where Peter is set apart. He's called the rock, he's given the keys, and then um, Christ talks in Luke 22 about how he's prayed for that he, that he will strengthen his brethren. And on top of this, the apostles list him first whenever they list the apostles. So now with all this in mind, I want us to finally look to John 21. Um, But first, I want to, in doing so, want to look at Luke 5 and keep this in mind of when Christ and Peter first meet. So in Luke's account, if you couple it with Matthew 4, Peter is with three other future disciples. Andrew, his brother, James, and John. But it is Peter who is spoken to directly. Um, So the exchange goes as, He said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish. And as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down on Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the catch of the fifth, which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So, this was the first of many times chronologically that Peter is addressed while in the presence of the other disciples explicitly and directly and set apart. His actions and words represent those with him. He is written about in such a way that he speaks on their behalf. Jesus addresses no other man here except Simon. No other man responds verbally to Christ except Simon. Christ is going to make them fish of men, but more specifically, Peter. This meeting of Peter and the Lord couples with John 21 in which Jesus continues this living parable in order to lead Peter and also the other apostles that are present into deeper understanding of his will for them. So in John 21, Simon Peter says to those with him, I am going fishing. The apostles with him, they say, we will go with you. They caught nothing until the risen Christ appears on the shore and tells them where to cast their net. Um, The net being you know, the symbol for the kingdom and the church that the gospels, um, such as in Matthew thirteen forty seven, which says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which is, which was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down, sorted the good into vessels, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. 
So, upon following the guidance of our Lord on the shore, they received in their net a multitude of fish, which made it impossible to haul all the way back to shore, even with all those present pulling at the net, as we see in John 21, verse 6. But once St. John recognizes it is the risen Lord upon the beach, Peter swims to him. Jesus then asks for the fish that were caught to be brought in, and Peter alone answers this request. What Peter could not do with the group of apostles before, he was now able to do at the command and request of, and the request of Christ, and the net was not torn. Unlike their first meeting, when the net in fact did break under Peter's care, Peter then in particular asks if he loves the Lord and subsequently told, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, after each declaration of love. The good shepherd is simultaneously loving Peter and reconciling him despite Peter's three denials, and he is asking Peter alone to be the shepherd to his flock. All the apostles except John ran and abandoned Christ during his passion, not wishing to be caught with him, but it is Peter specifically who is taken aside in a special manner while in, the, while in the, their presence and reunited with the Lord in this way. Peter is being reminded of his office given him in Matthew 16 and told what he is to be for the faithful in the days and years to come. Peter is thus established as the rock of the ministry for the high priest, who is also the cornerstone, steward for the king of kings, and shepherd of the sheep belonging to the good shepherd of this infant church by Christ. So what does this mean for the church? So we have a shepherd here on earth who, by his office, keeps the faithful within the nets that will not be torn. And by being under the care of this fisherman shepherd, who is a rock alongside the cornerstone, we will be led and gathered to the shores of eternity upon stable ground. Christ established this stewardship as a gift for us. Um, you know, we'll definitely go more into the papacy itself in another episode but here i want to give some scriptural evidence and there's even more so that we'll go into probably into like a in a round table discussion or, or or things like that uh or maybe within an interview um sometime in the future but i wanted to give you know a very basic um defense of saint peter as being set aside from the other apostles and that he indeed is the rock that the church was built upon that he is the steward and shepherd um, who is operating in a Christ-like fashion for the sake of the church. Um, and Christ did this for us. So not only did he give us the entirety of himself within his passion, he gave us a church and he gave us a, a shepherd. He did give us a shepherd. Um, and to call, to not call, you know, to say Peter isn't a shepherd is just against scripture. Um, you know, pastor means shepherd. He gave us a shepherd. He told Peter to feed his sheep, to tend to his flock. This is a gift for us. Um, and so when I come across, you know, different Protestant arguments against Peter and him being set apart, they just don't hold any water for me. Um, when I came back into the church, I latched on to St. Peter a lot. Um, he, <laughs> at the same time, 
um, that he is he can be very humble in the presence of Christ. At the same time, he can he can really mess up. <laughs> he can really mess up, which goes to show that we don't expect perfection from our popes. The fact that our first pope cursed Christ and denied him three times in public and the fact that christ called him satan he said get behind me satan um like that was our first pope and so also the significance of peter is we should not be holding our popes to a standard of perfection because christ didn't hold peter to a standard of perfection right he didn't and so we shouldn't hold our popes to, to you know a standard that Christ didn't hold Peter. It's not to say that popes can't go without criticism. Of course they can. Um, and we can criticize Peter, you know, for denying Christ and, and things like that. Paul, you know, talks about how he reprimanded, um, well, not reprimanded, but how he confronted Peter as well and, and called him out on, on, a, on a hypocrisy. So, like, it can be done. But I'm just saying, um, you know, Peter is the first pope the standard that was set by christ himself he he was given the keys he was the first among um all of the other popes that we ha have had throughout history and he was not perfect um and i think honestly this should give us hope within the church is that the pope was never expected to be perfect the pope was never expected to be blameless the pope was never expected um, to be inerrant um, or to be graceful with how he conducted himself how he conducted his language or anything like that this should be a hope for us um, and so with that I just felt like you know I want to give a defense of St. Peter the one who this um, business that I have upon the rock is named in honor of um, because I do have that very special connection to St. Peter um, I really connect with all of his mess-ups and everything like that. And so I wanted to give a, a defense for him in light of the attacks against him outside of the church uh, that say that he wasn't anything special. Peter definitely was something special. And he's a saint that I think a lot of us should look to and a saint that I think we should pray to more often and that we should implore, not just for our own personal lives, but for the church as a whole. And, he, again, he is a good example that we do not need to be perfect. We're not expected to be perfect. And that, even when committing grave, terrible sins, not to say you should commit grave, terrible sins, but I'm saying even in that instance, that you are not beyond God's mercy and love, for he will still call upon you, and he will still restore you and reconcile you to himself if you have an open heart to it. And so that's all I want to talk about today. Um, I think that Peter is someone that we should definitely be thinking of as we're heading into um, towards, you know, Good Friday and Easter, of uh, thinking about the mercy of God and the ways that we can be reconciled to him in our own lives. And with that, I want to say thank you for all the support that we've, we've, been, uh, we've been given recently. Thank you for all your prayers, and we will see you in the next episode.
you liked this episode, or the podcast in general, please share and leave a review. If you'd like to support Upon the Rock, please consider following us on Patreon. Also, don't forget to go to UponTheRockBlog.com to keep up on all the content we have to offer with much more on the way. Upon the Rock would like to thank all of our supporters. We ask you to continue to pray for us. Thank you.